quest is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths. Enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Darkness cannot drive us out of darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive us out of hate. Only love can do that. Paraphrasing Martin Luther King Jr. This episode is about politics today, nonviolent speech, action, and skillful behaviors with Tom Cummings, a liberal Buddhist. Tom Cummings is a retired information systems manager, a former executive and personal life coach, a daily meditation practitioner, a longtime student of Buddhism, and the creator and blogger who writes for theliberalbuddhist.com. He practices meditation in the Vipassana style, which aspires to the gaining of insight into the impermanent and interconnected nature of all things. In addition to Tom's daily sitting practice every morning, he attends weekly meditation sessions and is constantly reading about meditation and Buddhism. To read Tom's full biography, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Here is the interview with Tom Cummings. In your own words, who is Tom Cummings? So I would say Tom Cummings is a husband, a father, and a very engaged student of Buddhist philosophy and meditation practice. Hmm, thank you. Before we begin talking about liberal Buddhists and uncivil speech and uncivil actions, I have a few questions for you. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? Well, I think the greatest need among many, the greatest need is for a, a much broader sense of compassion, awareness of the suffering that's taking place in the world in so many areas and affecting so many individuals. 
Mm. How do you define compassion? So, the, as I understand the uh, the Buddhist definition of compassion, and this is how I try to to express it for myself, compassion is not only seeing and knowing about the suffering of others, but actually being moved, inspired, uh, motivated to do whatever one possibly can to alleviate that suffering. That can take a lot of different forms, so there's no really set definition of, oh, here's how to be compassionate, but the, the main component of compassion is being moved to want to do something, whatever that might be, to alleviate the suffering. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. One of the things that I understand, I have come to understand about life, that self-compassion, I think it's more important or as important as having compassion for others. So I would absolutely agree. I don't think we can offer anything to someone else, whether it's love or compassion or some sort of physical sustenance, you know, money, or we can't offer anything to another person if we don't already have it for ourselves. So I, I would completely agree with what you said. What do you think is the purpose of your life, Tom? So that's something that has been, you know, evolving, uh, you know, for me a lot, especially in the last 10 or 15 years as I've come to to be attracted to the uh, Buddhism, the principles of Buddhism, and as I've tried to bring them into my life. I would say that as I'm experiencing it now, in this moment of my life, the purpose of my life is to show compassion and generosity, not only to my loved ones, but to everyone that I come in contact with. Easier said than done. <laughs> true. So true. Uh, when did you find out that this is the purpose of your life? So I can't point to any particular event. You know, I don't have a, some sort of dramatic story where suddenly the, uh, something became apparent to me that wasn't. It's something that has simply been growing and developing within me as I read the, uh, the teachings of Buddhism and listen to Buddhist teachers offer their Dharma talks, there, the themes of generosity and compassion come up again and again. I, I think they're, you know, as core to the philosophy and teachings of the Buddha as anything that you can name. So taking in the talks and uh, practicing meditation and reading as much as I've read over the last couple of years, this has simply become the overriding uh, concern that I have in how I live my life. Mm, right. What do you think the difference is between love and compassion? So love is, as I experience, it's something that's very directed to a particular person and in particular persons. And it's, it's about the relationship, the give and take relationship that, that we have with those individuals that we love. And I don't believe we can love everybody. I don't think that's even a, a viable proposition to offer to the world that we should all try to love everybody. I think, you know, I've, I've heard recently, I forget where, but the, um, 
what what someone said that really struck me was if you're attempting to love everybody, you're loving nobody. <laughs> right. There's some truth to that. I would say love is very much wrapped up in the relationship with the particular people that we have that we feel love for, and it's limited to those relationships. Compassion is actually a stance that we can take, an attitude that we can take towards everyone. We can have compassion not only for the people that we're close to in our lives, we can have compassion for the strangers that we're walking past on the street or riding the subway with. We can have compassion for the barista that gives us our coffee at the Starbucks. We can have compassion for the refugees from Syria. We can have compassion for the immigrants being separated from their families at the border. We can have compassion for the victims of floods and other natural disasters. I think there's no limit to compassion. That's, that's how I would differentiate it from love. I'm wondering what makes someone compassionate. How does one become compassionate or more compassionate? So I don't really have a, a thought about how one starts to become compassionate, but I think paying attention to what we see around us is one way to begin, you know, accessing that feeling. If, if we're aware of the many ways that people in the world suffer, people close to us uh, from illness, from old age, from accidents, we can begin, I think, to develop this sense of compassion. It, I think it takes a little bit of work because one can also see, you know, harm and injury befall another individual and have the reaction, well, I'm glad that wasn't me. Or we can have the reaction of pity or even blame, you know, well, they brought that on themselves, whatever uh, hardship they might be undergoing. So compassion isn't natural, but I think it's available to us if we look really carefully at what's going on around us and recognize that suffering happens to everybody and it's not necessarily their fault. And in most cases, it's absolutely not their fault. And what we see happening to other individuals, both you know, in our own circle of acquaintances, but also out in the wider world, the sufferings that we see, if we're really paying attention, I think we can also begin to understand that these sufferings not only could happen to us through no fault of our own, but they're probably happening to the great many other individuals who are experiencing them through no fault of their own. And to me, that's the essence of compassion. Mm, wow. Yes, a thousand times. So in a way, it is by becoming less self-centered. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's also a key teaching in, in the Buddhist philosophy. To get away from being focused on, on your own personal self. So moving the conversation to the main topic, uncivil speech and uncivil actions, liberal Buddhism. Uh, how do you show compassion or in what ways do you show compassion to Donald Trump? Well, there <laughs> you, you've asked the million dollar question. <laughs> And I love that you asked me that question because that was one of the very first questions I brought to one of my first, you know, Buddhist classes with with a teacher. 
And I wish I could say that that teacher gave me the perfect <laughs> answer and that I've had no trouble with it ever since. But I don't think there is an answer to that that, you know, just kind of makes it real easy to have compassion to Donald Trump or to any political leader with whom we, we disagree. But I, I would say this as a first step towards having compassion to a person like Donald Trump. We might start by saying that he, like every other individual in the world, is suffering. Now, we don't, we don't know how, and it's hard to think of a person suffering who, you know, has the fortune, the financial fortune that he has and the lifestyle that he has. It would seem that he has every comfort in the world. But in fact, if you can force yourself to read through, you know, a string of his Twitters and you can pick any day of the last, you know, two and a half years. If you read what he's writing on those Twitters, you really hear a person who is so angry, so full of himself. I have a hard time wondering if Donald Trump has ever had a friend or business. So and it becomes almost judgmental for me to say that. He's saying it just to offer a thought, not to actually make a pronouncement. Maybe he has some very good friends. I don't know. But it's hard to think of a person like him who is so filled with himself. You know, the, the term narcissist is used so often in commentary about him. And almost everything that he says seems to come down to you know his view of himself as this, you know, supremely competent person who should be in charge, not only of the United States, I sometimes think he thinks he should be in charge of the world. So I think for me, I try to remind myself often that it can't be pleasant to have the, the outlook that he has on the world, that he's probably a very lonely person. It seems people can't work for him. If we keep track of the number of people in his administration who have quit, it's, it's got to be the highest turnover rate we've ever experienced in a presidential administration. And I don't think that's, you know, an accident. I think people find him intolerable to be around. So I get back to saying my compassion for him is I wouldn't want to be him. <laughs> uh, yeah, that made me think about another question. Let me see if it makes sense to you. Would you feel less compassionate toward a psychopath or its victim? I know it seems like a very obvious answer, but a psychopath has no understanding of what life is about. They have no way of being aware of deeper meanings of love. It's a mind that is mired um, in fear. I would, would endorse everything that you've just said. I think I would certainly go to the easy answer myself and feel sorry for the victim because it was simply a random act that brought them into contact with the psychopath that did did them harm you know so you you say they had nothing they didn't do anything to cause this and now they're suffering you know what whatever they're suffering and what comes to mind immediately for me is the, the victims of terrorist attacks right they, they simply were in the wrong place at the wrong wrong time and any kind of random different decision that they'd made two or three hours ago about how they were going to spend their day, they may not have been at the site where they were 
either killed or, or grievously wounded in the attack. So, yeah, my heart certainly goes out, as, as everyone's does, to the victims of, of any kind of psychopathic behavior or deliberate terrorist attack. And at the same time, I completely agree with what you said about, you know, the, the psychopath has, by virtue of their condition, no joy in, in their lives. And that's something to feel compassion, you know, for them about. And I hesitate to draw the analogy between what you just said about the psychopath and what I about our president, but it, it is, you know, we are kind of saying the same thing. Right, in a way, yeah. Um, yeah, we see that a lot with um, mental illnesses. So these uh, people, these minds, they're in the prison of their own, they can't really change. So it's kind of hard to uh, judge, to point the finger and, and say that they are wrong and just try to um, make the situation better by criticizing, by putting those them down. The conversations about compassion, if we have this deep understanding about life, then we also know that for some reason that we, we cannot know, that's the mystery. Some of us are not able to change. Let's say good people do what they do. They try to change the world for the better. I meet them all the time. I see this in myself. But then the same way I see the other side, the what we call bad it takes a deep, deep understanding to just accept those things because they are just part of life. Uh, so again, I, I completely agree with everything you just said. And when, when you said at the beginning of your, your comments that you know we, we shouldn't be judging and pointing the fingers, that again, you touched on something that's very central to Buddhist teachings, which is you know, we, we are not about making judgments for other people. We do try to see the, the world, you know, as it is, and our judgments tend to cloud the the way things are. And if I can just digress to a, a story that my my own teacher at my meditation center is fond of telling, and and I've, I've always found it really interesting to listen to. Uh, shortly after the 9/11 attacks, one of the the um, very famous Buddhist teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh. And the interviewer said to him, if you were in a room with Osama bin Laden right now, and again, remember, this is like within a few months after the attacks, if you were in a room with Osama bin Laden right now, what would you say to him? According to my teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh's reply to that question was, first, I would listen. So talk about no judgment. And that's not agreeing with what was uh, was Osama bin Laden's intention in the 9-11 attacks. First, I would listen. I would try to understand what made him, you know, su you know support and, and, in fact, you know, organize. Right, without any judgment, just being open. Yeah, I really... Um, something that's important to practice, in my opinion, I have found to be very useful in understanding life itself and coming to accept what is, is being open, open-minded and open-hearted. What is to be a liberal Buddhist? So I'm still trying to find out. I actually launched the blog under that title after, you know, for, after writing a different blog for about five years called Engaged Mindfulness. And the reason I relaunched the blog under the title The Liberal Buddhist 
was that I was finding myself becoming more politically engaged, not only during the, the years of President Obama, where I felt that you know the, the political direction that he was taking the country in was very much in line with the the teachings that I was studying with Buddhism, but more so after you know Mr. Trump took office, and suddenly the politics of the country seemed to be so different from the the Buddhist teachings that I I've been studying, um, and I felt that I needed to look more deeply at what Buddhism has to offer to the political discourse, especially the, in these times where our political discourse has become so polarized, so full of thoughtless emotion, and so, so much about not only I'm right and you're wrong, but I'm right and you're a threat to the country. And, you know, I think both both sides of the political spectrum have a little bit of that going on. I do think Mr. Trump's side has much more of that going on right now. But unfortunately, and this was the theme of the uh, the uncivil speech and uncivil actions post that I wrote, unfortunately, we're all getting drawn into that, no matter what our beliefs, we're all getting drawn into the uncivility of the political commentary going on, because it seems we're at a, a stage in our culture where only very emotional statements get any uh, traction in the media. And people who are talking calmly about the issues and offering you know, analysis and constructive thoughts are not getting attention. And I'll, I'll just conclude with this one last little bit of a political pitch, candidate pitch, but it's, it's nothing more than an observation right now. One of the things I'm finding so appealing about Elizabeth Warren's primary campaign is that she's succeeding by bringing issues to the foreground. You very rarely hear her say anything derogatory about her opponents, and kind of goes out of her way not to. So I'm very encouraged by a trend that I, th I think she's you know, bringing, bringing us back to having reasonable conversations, and she's having success. She's getting attention in the media. So she's almost an exception to what I, I have been observing over the last few years, where, you know, it only seems like emotion and hatred gets attention in the media. She's going against that trend. That sounds good to me. Yeah, I don't know who she is. I will try to find out. But yeah, that sounds that sounds very good. Yeah, focusing on the things we can do and how can we help instead of pointing pointing the fingers and trying to blame others uh, using emotions, right? Yeah, that has to do a lot with the being self centered, right? Or competition, separation, division, right? Uh, you mentioned one of Michelle Obama's statements. So, to you, what is the meaning of her statement? When they go low, we go high. So that's, I think, a very catchy phrase to um, illustrate exactly what's the difference between President Trump's tweets, which tend to be very emotional, very self-justifying, and also very filled with anger, if not hatred. 
and very insulting. He's, he's insulted a great many of his political opponents. He gives them nicknames that are very derogatory. So that's, that would be going low. I think what Michelle Obama was talking about, and this was, I think she made this comment early in the 2016 presidential uh, you know, election campaigns, where Hillary Clinton was attempting to ignore the kind of taunts that then candidate Trump was tossing her way. And he, again, he said some very derogatory things about her, some very misogynist things. And she tended not to answer to what, you know, what he did in these personal attacks. And she tended to keep it on the issues and to focus on her experience. And she certainly had a great, great deal more governmental experience than, than Mr. Trump did. So Michelle was kind of pointing out that, you know, Hillary was taking the high road. She was staying with the issues and, and not going, getting down to the level of making derogatory attacks on Mr. Trump. Now, for all sorts of reasons that are way beyond what, what I guess we want, would want to talk about here, that was not a successful campaign tactic. And Mr. Trump's campaign you know, did, did manage to win the election. But I think she was trying to encourage Hillary. And you know, it certainly resonated with me and resonated with the whole idea in Buddhism of, you know, appropriate, skillful speech. You don't make those kind of subjective attacks on someone that you disagree with. You listen to them, right, as Thich Nhat Hanh suggested that he would do even with, uh, with Osama bin Laden. You listen to them and then you try to, to show them how your view differs. What do you think Mahatma Gandhi, Martha Luther King, Nelson Mandela, and the Buddha himself would say about our current political situation? Well, I think the first thing they would say is, oh, what a shame. <laughs> this is not the way it ought to be. I think that's, that would be the first thing. But, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the Buddha would have done. We, we know so little about his life, but what we have is the written record of, of his teachings. We know very little about his, his actual life. But, you know, it, there are so, so many things in common with the way Gandhi and Mandela, Dr. King, responded to oppression. And, you know, the, the, the common theme that I see is nonviolence. They each in their own way in very different cultures and dealing with very different systems of oppression embraced nonviolence and they encouraged their followers to embrace nonviolence, which is about as unemotional, I think, as you can get. Yes. You know, sit down, whether it's at a segregated lunch counter in the South 50 years ago, which took amazing courage, still boggles the mind to think of what the, those original civil rights sit-in protesters, the danger that they were exposing themselves to. And, and for some of them, you know, the danger, you know, turned out to be a fact. Uh, but the same with, you know, Gandhi and Mandalas, the movements that they led in their country. It took such courage to stand up to armed, you know, military and police forces and simply hold your ground and say, you know, we have justice on our side. And I think that that's what they would be encouraging, you know, us to do right now, to have, have mass demonstrations that 
are completely peaceful. And right now, that's that's a great challenge in our time because there's there's so much anger out there, you know, even even on the far left, that to to try and hold a demonstration in opposition to a particular thing going on in the the Trump administration, you we we risk that demonstration being taken over by you know violent activists it's a it's a real challenge i think for for all of us i don't want to put point the finger to any one group of people it's a challenge for us not to get caught up in the anger of the moment not to try to speak with as much emotion and anger as we hear from the other side it's it's a great temptation that we need to keep calling calling to mind the, the leaders like Dr. King and Nelson Mandela and uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah, um, interesting what um, you just said about it's a challenge to not to get angry at angry people or everything that's happening. But one thing that you mentioned earlier, too, that I can now kind of bring the subject back of you cannot give what you don't have. So I guess it's happening for a reason, too. If we are getting angry or violent at violent actions or behaviors, it's because that's in us. We cannot give what we don't have. So we basically give, express what is in us. I don't think we should try to suppress our emotions and the way we feel about something, because this is a way also from what I understand um, in the healing process of anything, we first need to know what is in us that needs to change in order to make that change. So we need to expose what is in us. So again, I, I completely agree with you. And the, what, what you bring to mind for me from the teachings is Buddhism and meditation are not about suppressing our emotions. They're about understanding them. So as you just said, if there's anger in us, we need to see that anger, understand it. But the distinction that I think that Buddhism calls for on us to make is after we see the emotion, after we know the emotion, to choose how, in fact, to respond on the basis of that emotion. So we can choose either to, you know, return an an angry, hateful statement from, you know, someone that we disagree with politically, we can choose to return that statement with an equally angry, hate, hateful, hurtful statement at them. Or we can recognize that we're feeling this anger in response to what they've said to us, but we can choose to respond, you know, with a statement of, you know, a, a reasoned statement of why we disagree with them and why we're advocating a different approach to a particular political situation. And, you know, that's, again, that's, that's so much easier said than done. But that's, for me, that's the real work of mindfulness and meditation is know those emotions that are in us and know them and recognize them when they arise, when anger or any other kind of negative emotion arises. Know it, recognize it, own it but not necessarily respond from that anger. Respond from a place of knowing the anger, but not from actually returning the anger. Right. Yes. And that might take time. We don't know why some people become aware to that level of understanding of their own emotions. 
and knowing how to respond. We don't know. I think everyone has their own time to understand those things. And sometimes if you believe in reincarnation, it takes lifetimes. So one of the things I like to say that's important to understand too is to be patient with ourselves and others. I think patience is something that it's part of compassion. I completely agree. None of these situations that we're looking at in in either our, our own country's political discourse or, you know, situations that are happening, you know, across the globe, none of them are going to go away tomorrow. So we need patience. And yet patience, I think we need to, to look at patience from a place of not just saying, okay, so, you know, I'll just you know, passively accepted. Patience that recognizes it's while things are going to be pretty much the same tomorrow as they are today, what can I do individually and perhaps what can I do collectively with others who, you know, are aligned with with my my views? What can I do to kind of push things a little bit in the direction that I think they need to go in. And that takes patience too, because it's a long, slow process, isn't it? Yes, 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 yes. Coming to our last questions, I call this section, whatever comes to mind, they are well-being questions. What are you grateful for in this very moment? Oh, for sure, my, my wife, my children, my friends, the fact that where I am at this particular moment is, you know, a, a place of not so much suffering as people, other people that, that I know personally, and certainly other people that you know I'm aware of in the world. So I'm, I'm grateful for just what's, what's good in my life right now. Wonderful. How do you define success, Tom? So that's something I don't really think of that that often. When I was in the corporate world, I thought of success as, you know, getting promoted, getting a raise, kind of achieving, you know, more of my goals. I've come, you know, I'm now retired, so I, I don't have the, the, the stress of a corporate job to cope with anymore. Uh, and I, now I, I spend so much of my time with, with Buddhist studies. So success for me now is much more about having a deeper and deeper awareness both of, you know, myself and what sort of drives me and more and more of an awareness of what the teachings are saying both to me individually and what I think they're saying to the world collectively. What is to be strong? So I think strength in in the Buddhist sense that I'm trying to exercise it is recognizing that the the fundamental fact that there is suffering in this world that that does not go away. The you know we're all subject to aging, to illness. We're all subject to death. We're all subject to separation from those that we love, as well as you know losing things that we value or not getting things that we wish we had. Um, and suffering is universal. Uh, it's, not, it's not happening at every moment in every person's life, but it is universal and you can't live this life without eventually encountering some form of suffering. So I think strength is recognizing that fact, recognizing that you can't do anything to erase that fact. You, you can't evade suffering, you can't deny it. 
and you can't avoid it, and still living your life as if you could. I never heard it that way. Well, thanks. No one ever asked me the question before, so I don't thought the thought before, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself and life as of today? To realize how incredibly self-centered I was for so long a time in my life. It's one of the reasons I once said to, to my, my teacher, I, I almost regret discovering Buddhism because it's made me see my past through the lens of compassion and generosity. And what I found by looking at my past that way was I was not a very generous person. I was very, very much not a compassionate person. I was extremely, extremely self-involved. And now I just get to live with, with that sort of view of my past. So that, that's, that would be my answer to your question. What is another word for compassion? I'm, I'm actually trying to come up with one because I don't have one. I would say sensitivity in other directed sensitivity might be another, for, I know that's not a, a single word, but I want to distinguish from a sensitivity, meaning a sensitive nature that's easily hurt and, you know, kind of that, that would be a self-involved sensitivity. So I want to say sensitivity to the sufferings of others. So again, I, I can't give you a word, but that's my best phrase for, for what, what I think of when I think of compassion. Yeah. Yeah. If you knew you would die soon, What change would you make about your life? I think I would look as closely as I could to the ways I'm still very self-involved. And I would try to let go of as much of that as I could for whatever time I had left. Do you believe in life after death? No, I actually don't. Hmm. Why not? I'm very evidence-based individual for you know all sorts of reasons. I see no evidence that there is anything but the consciousness that's going on in our alive bodies. And once those alive bodies pass into a state of death, there's, to, you know, again, in, in terms of evidence, there is no evidence of consciousness. Therefore, I believe we, we enter into the same state of non-existence after our death that we were in, if, if that's even a correct word, that we were in before we were born. You know, I don't know where I was. I have no concept of me, Tom Cummings, in the year 1930. I hadn't been born yet. And I think whenever my death comes, that after that moment, I will once again be non-existent because there'll be no consciousness of me after my death, just as there was no consciousness of me before my birth. You are somebody who are choosing to be good and to be more compassionate, uh, show love, even though you know or you believe that there is nothing. So what motivates you to choose to be good? Quite honestly, and this, is, this will be a, a self-involved answer, it feels better to be good than not. And to harken back quickly to what I said before to your, your answer to your question about my past, I, I was not a happy person when I was a, an, as self-involved as I was in my 20s and 30s. I was not a happy person. I'm a happier person now trying to not be so self-involved. So it kind of, it, there, it comes down to a selfish answer. It, it just, it feels better. I feel better all the time by trying to be less self-involved. And when I slip, which I still do quite often, 
into a state of self-involvement, I recognize how unpleasant that is. So I get out of it as fast as I can. Right. Do you think that there is such a thing as a non-selfish answer for this question, apart from being um, religious or holding those uh, beliefs of life after death and rewards after we die? So, you know, there, there might be, I just don't see any evidence for them right now. And I'm, I'm reasonably content with um, the sense that I, I just feel I'm a happier person now with these beliefs than I was in the past without them. But I, I don't know. I, the, the answer to your question is, I don't know. Maybe there, that, that's wonderful if there is. Mm. What are three things about life you know for sure? It's too short. It feels better living it, you know, in, in close connection to as many people as we can. And there's always more to learn. You can always go deeper in whatever it is that you're pursuing. You know, in my case, it's, it's Buddhist studies. But, you know, in, in whatever it is that any individual chooses to make the focus of their life, there's always further to go. Thank you so much for your presence. Well, thank you for, you know, inviting me in for the conversation. And believe me, I've, I've thought of things as I was saying them that I don't think I had ever thought of before. So I certainly enjoyed our conversation, too. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your work, uh, if you have products to sell or services, projects? Okay, so I just have a social media presence and they're all three of them are entitled Liberal Buddhist. There is a blog on WordPress called The Liberal Buddhist. There is a public page on Facebook called The Liberal Buddhist. The blog has my own writings, my own short reflections and essays. Facebook page has links to articles that I've come across in the press that I feel embody some of what I'm trying to write about on my blog. So rather than put those links on my blog, I put them on a Facebook page. And then I have a Twitter feed called The Liberal Buddhist, which is basically the, the same as my Facebook page. It simply has links to articles that I, I have found useful for myself. Sounds great. Thank you so much again. I'll talk to you soon. You're welcome. I look forward to that. Okay. Bye, Tom. Bye for now. Bye-bye. listening to learn more about tom cummings please visit his website theliberalbuddhist.com to learn more about this podcast please visit fitforjoy.org podcast I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>